I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times or to reconcile the troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. Hi, I'm Eric Bricker, and this is the Good Counsel Podcast. I am joined today by Blake Cohen, formerly of Next Level Recovery Associates. Blake just recently left that very successful program in order to further pursue his doctoral education, and hopefully you'll tell us all about that. I'm actually really excited to hear about it. This is a little bit of an unusual thing for me because most of the people that I interview here are other people in behavioral health care that are known to me, folks that I've worked with, and you are someone who I really mostly know by reputation and through social media. So we really just met in face-to-face -face for the first time the other day. I saw what you did on social media when you announced that you were leaving Next Level Recovery Associates. I went back and I watched that video a couple of times. It was actually really moving that you said it to music and the whole thing. And I thought to myself, this is such a classy way to end a partnership. I was moved by it. And I thought to myself, I want to talk to him. I want to interview him about all this stuff. But honestly, the real reason I want to interview him is I just like him. He just came across as very likable to me. And it sounds like you had a lot of interesting things to talk about. I've seen you on social media before. And uh, so here we are. And thank you so much for coming in and joining me today. No, thanks for having me. This is actually one of the first things I'm doing since leaving next level the official last day was uh, the end of the year of 2023 and uh i gave myself or i'm giving myself three four weeks to kind of just hit the reset button and and recuperate the mind and spirit but when you had reached out and asked you know i figured that this could be uh, a good time for me to even process it and it can be recorded with you but we can kind of process the transition, and um, I'm just excited to be here and talk to you. Of course, I've, I believe we've maybe referred some clients to you in the past, and I know that you know I've had a ton of respect from you from afar. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here and to be able to meet you. Well, thank you for all of that. So as long as we're on the topic of processing things, <laughs> I'm older than you. I'm 54 years old. How old are you? 36. You're 36, so you're a good bit younger than me. Yeah, so you're 54. You're I, I'm fucking <laughs> hey man. I'm 54. Now I sound like I'm 54. Yeah. I'm 54 and you're 36, so you carry the eight and uh yeah, so that, I think that means I'm 18 years. I'm 18 years older than you. <laughs> the calculator, I think. I think, yeah. I think I'm I think I'm 18 years older than you. So I'm going to give the older guy generational question to you. Mhm. Mm I've had a lot of my own personal ups and downs in my career, you know, done things that went well, done things that didn't go well. 
And I'm looking at you at your age being part of this really successful business. And my first thought is, who walks away from something like that? <laughs> well, I didn't, I realized I was recording with my dad here. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm no, sorry. no, no, I'm, I'm joking. I, I'm, I think I'm like everybody's dad now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I get the optics. I, I know what that looks like. And I know that it, it doesn't seem, it seems a little crazy to walk away from it, but and this probably has a lot to do with my how I grew up and my background, but I don't know that I ever got into the industry or the job for money. And especially with what I've been learning in school and the areas I've been focusing on in terms of leadership and workplace wellness, I know that money is pretty far down the rungs of, of what offers fulfillment and contentment. So I had to take some hard looks at myself and realize that I just was no longer happy in the current organization or the position I was in. And it had nothing to do with the company. It was more to do with, I discovered that I feel like I was on the wrong path. And I, I found this area of org psych and leadership and, and fell in love. And it was too strong to ignore. And it, it was pulling me away from being able to contribute to the company's success, to next level's success, because um, I was just distracted. I get that. And I think the way that you handled it, I think the way that uh, you and your partner, Amanda, handled it is really the right way to deal with something like that. Because if you address it in this forthright and direct way, it becomes a matter of, I'm moving on because I have a professional difference and my attention is being directed elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to invest my energy into a different thing as opposed to if it's allowed to linger on for a while longer and it becomes the source of arguments, then we have a professional falling out that's related to a problem between two people. Yeah, This isn't a problem between two people. This is just divergent path in the road where exactly. you're like- my interests are no longer aligned with what's happening here and I, I need to move on to pursue something else. Yeah. I mean, and, and look, the reason why we addressed it in the way that we did and sort of publicly in, in a number of videos, it wasn't just that one. There was a few times that we jumped on some recordings and did some lives together to really address and put this out there is just, we know human nature. I, I understand human nature is if there's a big blank where somebody says, oh, this person's leaving the company and they don't have a why, everybody needs a why. That, that's how we all function as humans. We need to have an understanding and a why that explains situations. If not, you fill in the blanks yourself. But isn't that part of the fun? <laughs> there is a little bit of me that wanted to plant some crazy seeds of what was happening um, just to mess with people. Yeah, give the people what they want. Yeah. <laughs> the opportunity to make up a bunch of shit about other people. Well, yeah, and as much as my my the personal side of me and my sense of humor wanted to do that, you know, especially when you're learning about leadership, I realized I had to do the right thing by the company, for the company, and for the people involved in it. So that's why I wanted to prevent any of those rumors from starting and spreading. Yeah, that's a uh, probably better judgment than whatever it is I was just toying about. Sounds like a more responsible decision. Yeah, no, <laughs> trust me, that's where my mind goes to. I'm joining the circus or something. So you're in a doctoral program at the William James School of Psychology in Boston? Yes. Okay. And for those of you who are unaware, William James is actually the founder 
of American psychology. He's the OG. He is the OG. So pretty cool place to be in school to be studying psychology, I think. Yeah, and it's great. I get to go up there once a semester. They do a residency week where I get to go be up there with everybody, interact with all the professors, my cohort, and and really dive in to the work that, that we're learning about. And specifically, your specialty is organizational? It's organizational and leadership psychology. Organizational and leadership. Yeah. Um, so my master's is also in leadership. Got it from Nova Southeastern University. And... Um, actually started the master's program the same day we started next level which is i will every time i mention that i will always recommend that people do not start a master's program the same day they start a company it's not a good idea that's ambitious yeah uh somehow got it done and just as i learned about it initially there was some interest in leadership um after some some professional things that I had went through and I could see how leadership can so quickly destroy an organization that was successful. But also I saw how organizational culture can, can foster such happiness. And so I kind of saw both sides of it and it fascinated me. And I thought a lot about at the time I was only working in the, the addiction treatment space. And I thought a lot about how leadership principles really apply to to finding recovery and i was the intention was to find a way to connect the two of okay let's see if i can put together some type of programming or write a book or do something that that offers people palatable leadership principles to help pull yourself out of a substance use disorder but as i was in the program i realized that i i really wanted to focus on the bigger picture and focus on systems and cultures and organizations and fixing problems at a larger level than the individual level so we were talking a little bit before we got on mic and i thought one of the pursuits that you had spoken about the idea of bringing leadership culture Mm -hmm. to the addiction treatment space yeah. was a really kind of cool idea, especially from the standpoint of you actually having a doctoral level education in organizational psychology and leadership. To look at it in that dynamic lens, as opposed to, hey, I'm a human resources director, and now I'm going to try to reform right. the way behavioral healthcare manages its relationships with employees and organizational culture. Right. It's looking at it more from a scientific level. Yeah. I thought that's actually cool because I came up in that system. I've worked for probably six different behavioral healthcare organizations before going out strictly on my own. Behavioral healthcare and substance use disorder treatment, it's notoriously dysfunctional. Yeah. Those environments. Even in the good ones. Even right? in the good ones. Notoriously dysfunctional for a lot of different reasons. I think the ambiguity of dealing with people with complex behavioral health problems and having relationships with them and providing clinical care, but also maintaining some form of professionalism and organizational business structure is a lot more of a complicated matter than the attention that it gets and probably is something that should get a lot more attention. I've heard this complaint for 25 years of my career in yeah. all different organizations about the lack of professionalism 
in the industry that you actually would see more professionalism in, in other industries, especially for people who have made the transition from one type of healthcare or one type of corporate environment or one type of profession into substance use disorder treatment and the things people say about that experience. Yeah. And I, I think there is some, there's benefit to what I'm about to say. So I, I'm not bashing this idea, but it, oftentimes at a lot of programs, the only qualification to work there is, is to have, have gone through your own personal experience or bouts with a substance use disorder. And I don't think that that necessarily should be a, a qualification that that allows you to kind of cross that barrier into being a professional in this field. I think there there is a certain level of training that has to come with it in order to keep that professional cap on and keep the organization professional. But it does also have its place within the organization. That's a tough line to toe because on one hand, the power of example and lived experience is instantaneously credible to the client base. So that's a really, really powerful tool in terms of motivating people and giving them hope. Well, I should clarify though, actually, because I, I, again, like I, I do believe that there is a ton of benefit to that. And the training shouldn't be a boundary to success. The training is actually meant more for the, I'm thinking on the employee side. A hundred percent. And there are things you're going to encounter working in a behavioral healthcare system, like a treatment program that are going to be traumatizing, that are going to be uh, unnerving, that are going to be difficult. You're going to have some difficult situations that you're going to have to have training or understanding of how to cope with and to continue on if you want a career in that, or it's going to burn you out. And then there goes your ability to be able to connect with any of the people. At a very early point in my career, somebody once told me this thing that is something you really have to kind of accept from the outset, which is very often the people that you go out of your way for, the clients that you go out of your way for the most, Mm -hmm. will inevitably be the ones who are the most abusive to you in the end. Mm -hmm. And that's not always true, right? But as a broad concept, it's kind of... A good way to think about it, knowing that when you're dealing with really unhealthy people, they can turn on you. And that's a lot to deal with. And you could find yourself in complicated situations that you've never planned for. And I think for people that come into a treatment setting strictly from a like a 12-step orientation of recovery mm-hmm. or their own recovery, and that's their orientation to what they're going to be in treatment. It's a, it's a different thing. It's right. a little bit of a different thing. Because if you're sponsoring somebody and they're not doing what they need to do, you can end the sponsorship arrangement. You can be honest with them and direct with them and let them know, like, I don't want to work with you in this way or whatever. When you're working with people with profound substance use disorders and behavioral health psychiatric disorders co-occurring, it's a very different thing. And sometimes you can't do that because you'll actually be abandoning the person. Right. And so you end up having to tolerate certain abuses or people not listening to you or whatever that may be a really foreign experience to you from your own recovery journey. And I think things like that, in addition to a bunch of other stuff. Sure. Takes a toll on you. Yeah. It takes a toll and it, and it never stops. If that's your job, it's, you know, those people are cycling through every 30, 60, 90 days and you're getting a continual flow of people that are exhausting you and, and pulling out your mental energy. And 
while the clinicians often have a opportunity for supervision and they're able to process with a, a supervisor, most of the other people within an organization in behavioral health don't have a time to process. They're not given that chance to say, hey, this is what's going on within me. This is what's been happening to me. I don't feel I'm exhausted all the time. There's, there's really no one asking that question. Hey, are you doing okay? The behavioral health techs. Yeah. Who are on the four to 12 shift. Mm-hmm often with very minimal supervision. Yeah. And during those periods of time, they are supervising the entire population of the community. And let's face it, that is the time where the majority of the acting out is going down. Yeah. And so these people are responsible for supervising what could be a group of 60 people Mm -hmm. with various levels of pathology. And it's stressful. Yeah, and the responsibility of making sure that there's no egregious injury that occurs as a result of someone's own behavior. There's a level of hypervigilance that you're in throughout the entire shift that's exhausting. I mean, so I started in this field as a tech, actually. So about 10 years ago. Did you? Okay. So you know, and you're taking someone to Publix or taking 60 people to Publix. And there's this nervous energy that you have the whole time of trying to keep an eye on everybody like like a watchful parent trying to keep a constant eye on everybody that you're just nervous something's going to happen the whole time. You're taking them to meetings, making sure no one's sneaking out. I mean, there's, there's. It's a different orientation. Only to a behavioral health tech does Publix become a wilderness of horrors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that, that wine aisle, wine and beer aisle. Oh my God. Well, it's cosmetics. It's razor blades. It's, you know, if they have computer cleaning duster and yeah. cleaning products it's and everything all these things that could be inhaled it's a lot to look out for Publix is south florida's biggest drug dealer that's not an easy thing to take a group there no no so and the point is is that i think there's a ton of systems within the larger system of behavioral health care that aren't supported in the way that they should be and ultimately Yes, it's looking out for the employees. And I think all leaders have a responsibility to look out for their employees. That That is the main point, is for leaders to be able to bring out the best in their teams and to support their teams so that they can have longevity and fulfillment and happiness in their careers. At the same time, when you're thinking of behavioral health care, if you want improved outcomes, this is your fastest way to doing that. And you, there's this misnomer or there's not a misnomer it's the way the way that we behave in behavioral health care for whatever reason the culture overall has become this idea of we must all work as hard as we can and exhaust ourselves and do whatever we can for the patient we come second the team comes third patients are first and i have this theory that that's backwards that if you're taking care of your team first and ourselves first, then we're going to be able to take better care of our clients. Yet none of us really do that in the field. We just tend to have this cycle of, I'm going to work myself to the bone. I'm going to burn out, take a break, come back and do it all over again. Yeah. As you're saying that, I'm thinking to myself, there's nothing worse than when you go into group the next day after a night where you didn't sleep and you're off and you're trying hard not to appear off, and the clients just smell it on you, that you're tired or irritable or just unmanaged, you know? And 
they start asking about your mood and asking what's going on with you and is everything okay? And of course, everything always has to be okay all the time. So it's like, I'm fine. Focus on yourself. And even there, there's those professional boundaries that I understand and I know why they're in place because it gives people, you know, you give them a, an inch, they take a mile, especially in treatment. But even those are opportunities for to to create connection and to model certain healthy behaviors to clients. I'm saying, hey, I'm actually really tired today and I'm struggling a little bit today. And, but there's this culture of like, we have to put on this facade that everything is okay all the time, whatever you need, we got it. We're okay. We're here to be your caretaker. And it's just not, it's just not true. And it's never, like I said, it's never ending in treatment. So you never really get that break. And it it, just, to me, it doesn't make sense. I think that you're right. And my hope is that your message and what you're trying to do ultimately and where I think that you're going to take it in this industry, because we're, we're sort of like the Silicon Valley of drug rehab, like South Florida. (laughs) There's lots and lots of treatment here and psychiatric residential facilities, and there's lots and lots of it. And it's a huge economy and employs a lot of people. And I think if these workplaces were made more healthy, Mm -hmm. you could be a behavioral health tech with a career pathway where you don't have to get a master's degree, but you could still have something of a career and it would be a healthy thing to do for a lot of years. The people I know who are behavioral health techs and are operating on that level, you spend more than a few years in the same place. it, It takes a toll. Yeah, it really does. It takes a toll and it doesn't have to, to your point. It could be a really rewarding and cool job. It, it can be. And, and to circle back to where we started with this is that most people who are working in this field are in recovery. So essentially by not creating this healthy culture and this healthy system, we're actually putting our employees in danger of of relapse and, and potential potentially things that are ser- more serious than that because we know what com- comes along with relapse. You know, it's we we have to consider that our our employees have also gone through these addictions. They also have their own issues, and if our workplace is contributing to a decline in their mental health, that's problematic. It is. We're we're doing the opposite of what we're trying to do with our clients. We're healing our clients, but we're hurting our staff. Now, I think uh, organizational wellness and behavioral health care is um, pretty important, and I think if you look at other forms of health care where issues like compassion fatigue Mm -hmm. and employee wellness and mandatory vacation times and um, appropriating time off commensurate with overtime hours and all of this stuff. I think for nursing, that's like standard in in a hospital. Yeah. And it, it should be, it should apply to the behavioral health care industry, but it just, it doesn't. And there's actually... I mean, you, you've worked in the, the field, maybe you had the same experience as me, but I almost experienced a, a bit of guilt and shame if I wanted to take some time off for myself. It felt almost shameful to do so. Like I wasn't, I wasn't on board. I wasn't being a team player. Well, this is my conceptualization of what a residential treatment center is. It's a living, breathing organism <laughs> and it's always hungry. It's yeah. always feeding and it feeds on human energy, the souls of the people that work there. <laughs> and so if I'm not there 
to be fed upon, yeah, then somebody else is being eaten in my stead. Right. Some other person is being cannibalized <laughs> by the endless needs of the population that we serve because mm -hmm. there's always a need and it's constant. They're not there because they're well. There's a lot of anxiety and constant need for reassurance that your needs are being met and that this is a safe place for you to be. That's what makes treatment possible. Yeah. And it requires a lot of personal attention. So if I carry a caseload of 10 people and my job is to help manage those people to have a safe and nurturing experience in this environment while setting boundaries and educating and doing all the other things that we do. And then I'm gone for a week. Well, those people's needs didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. They just get displaced on somebody else. Right. Who in turn gets eaten. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. You can come to feel like you've let down a comrade. Right. Somebody else out there is carrying my water. And it's not. It's usually not just one other person. It's usually a few other people have to pick up the slack, and and it's just a perpetual cycle of exhaustion, just going around and being traded from person to person. Well, if the facility isn't properly staffed to have people rotate into those positions, then mm -hmm. that need is being displaced upon the rest of the team, right? Where they're essentially being overworked. Yeah. And I'm as you're talking, I'm thinking from department to department. And I don't think there's a department within an organization in behavioral health care that doesn't have that same experience. It's every single department from UR to text to clinical to admissions. It's really all that same mentality everywhere throughout the whole system. I'll tell you who I saw that did a really good job of this. I'm not going to talk about all the people who did a bad job of this, but I'll right. tell you who did a good job of this. I think Karen Renaissance was really good in this capacity. And that was what I saw when I was working there because they had this stable of counselor assistants and behavioral health techs, all of whom were training to become therapists, all of whom had like additional training skills. Mm you know, DBT, they, they were all clinically savvy and they kind of had a farm team like that. And a lot of these people were being groomed to become primary therapists within the organization at a later time. But when you went on vacation for a week, you tell them, oh, I'm going on a cruise or whatever in March. It's no problem. They find one of these folks who wants to come in for a week and manage your caseload and they slide them right in and they really don't miss a beat because these people are high quality and capable and trained. And they're actually offering maybe some different perspective. Some of the clients might even, you know, really have a lot of growth during yeah. that, but they might really like this person that's brought in to kind of cover your caseload. So then the worry you have smart. is I better get back there before yeah, take your job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before somebody steals my job because yeah. they really like this other person. Well, but even so that speaks to the scarcity mindset as well. That is just sort of again ingrained in the overarching culture of this industry. There's this scarcity that's this someone's gonna take my job. There's it's psychological, it's the opposite of psychological safety. I never met a therapist who was any good that wasn't somewhat neurotic in some yeah. kind of way. <laughs> yeah. And I think that sort of comes with the territory. <laughs> you know, we are talking about human beings here who are fear-based yeah. nonsense. Sure. But I think we all have our own weird, I mean, I say that tongue in cheek, but there's always that, you know, neurotic anxieties and um, codependency and things like this that often come with it and are these other elements of 
our humanity that have to be challenged and managed in working with clients. Yeah. That's part of, it's part of doing your own work. As you mm. work in behavioral health care, you have to have an outlet for doing your own work. So when you talk about people in recovery working in treatment, a lot of those people are super effective working in that environment. And I think the ones that are the most effective are the ones who work really good programs outside of treatment. I think so too. I think there should be more that there should be doing because you're not able to process the organizational trauma that occurs in working in behavioral health. No, you can't do that in 12 step. Right. So I think that's where organizations should come in and offer certain benefits. You know, what we're talking about and fixing these issues are pretty simplistic. They're not, it's nothing crazy. And there's a huge business case for it. The organization can make a lot more money if they just take care of their staff. When I worked for uh, Hanley Center, which was Hanley Hazleton mm-hmm. at the time, so it was actually like a Hazleton program under the direction of the not-for-profit Hazleton Corporation right. out of Minnesota. So it adopted its policies, which were very employee-friendly. And they definitely had a really accessible employee assistance program available that paid for therapy. And I actually went to therapy through that program, which was paid for by my insurance, like a hundred percent for a few months. I think I had like 15, 20 sessions that I did. So it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty generous. It wasn't, uh, you just, you know, you need to knock this out in some brief therapy over three sessions. They gave you, you know, uh, a decent amount of time to process things. And it was super helpful too. I, I can only imagine. And, th- and that's exactly what, what I'm talking about. Just having those types of resources available. It's basically practicing what we preach. And it's, it's giving the same things to our teams to what we're giving to our clients. Well, it's my early experiences as a therapist working in a treatment environment where all of those insecurities were coming up about is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? And am I effective at my job? And in reality, what I learned was I was fine. I was just new. Hmm. And when you're new at something, you have to be new for a while. Yeah. And when you're brand new at something and you're comparing yourself to the people who've been doing this for 20 years, you're going to come up short or you're delusional if you think you're doing it at the level these people are doing it at. Sure. You talk about imposter syndrome. You know, that's, that's what that is. Yeah, so that was a lot to deal with, and that was a lot of what I had to process. And had I not had the opportunity to process it, it would have been that much harder to deal with all those issues. And that's what I talked about. And the EAP, the therapist I went to, was a person who had had experience working in those environments, like most people do in, in South Florida, have worked in treatment at some point. So it was really helpful to me. No, that's great. I think that's that's really important. I think, you know, as I'm thinking about it too, I guess part of it, maybe you could answer this as you worked in treatment and maybe outside of of working for, for Hanley Hazelden. But part of the issue that I've seen as well is that there's not that much time or it's sort of the expectation falls on the therapist to go do your own work and it's on you. And that's sort of the, that's the stance that most organizations take. Like we expect you to go do your own work, but realistically, how, how much time do you felt that you had working in this industry to go do your own work or how much energy did you have to be able to maintain doing your own work? As an agency therapist, when you're in that mode, it's difficult to do. 
for an abundance of reasons. One of which is that's generally a 50 hour a week job. Yeah. You know, primary therapist. Right. It's not a 40 hour a week job. So you're talking about the work that you do in treatment, which is stressful and the time that you take at home to do notes remotely or to deal with on-call issues. Mm -hmm. So it's usually a pretty consuming position. If you have a relationship, if you're in that phase of being like a young parent, like I was, now you have to be able to give a lot to that aspect of your personal life sure. because you don't want a dysfunctional marriage or to be like an absentee workaholic parent. Mm -hmm. And then of course there's the cost, which, you know, in terms of other professions that require a master's degree to do them, the pay scale is on the lower end. Sure. Yeah. Industry standards. So then there's the ability of, well, who can you afford to work with and how often? So I think all of those things come to play. But to answer your question directly, in my experience, most of the other therapists that I was working with, they were either consistently in therapy because they knew that it was something that they just had to do. Mm -hmm. And they were very invested into it. It was part of the process that got them to this point. Sure. Doing their own work. So there were those people. And then there were the other people who ended up having to make the time because they got into some kind of crisis. Right. Some huge personal thing going on, coupled with counter transferences mm -hmm. with clients, maybe even some criticism from supervision that you've, you've got a real problem here. You're not functioning at the level we need you to, or we don't like how you're handling this, or you know, getting called into the principal's office where you realize, whoa, this thing is starting to get away from me and I got to get a handle on what's going on with me because the anxiety that's right. being caused is not manageable anymore. And I know a lot of people who went through that. Yeah, and, and I think that's the... I mean, obviously we're speaking in generalities here. It's hard to go into too, like too much of the specifics, but yeah, I think that's the general idea of what happens to a lot of people working in treatment. And it's not just the clinical team. It's, it's everybody. We all reach that point of, of burnout. And then we're intervening in some way where we're bringing in a therapist or, and there's not much prevention going on. And there are ways to create a culture of prevention and a way of support where we don't have to get to that point continually. I feel like where you see that the most is generally through the staff and their relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. So you might have a really strong admissions team where these people have worked together for a while and they kind of have each other's back or the supervisor there is really tight with his or her crew of people. And yeah. So they look out for them and they know who's good and who's who's having a tough time and all of that. As far as from an organizational policy standpoint, it seems that that is less frequent where the organization advertises that this is a really strong employee culture and mm -hmm. like this awesome place to work. You yeah. see see a bit less of that. Yeah, I mean you're and you're referring to the, those heroes that I always call them heroes, the ones who work in treatment, who are those, just those guiding lights, those beacons, the ones that take care of their staff, take care of their teams, or just that, that person that really stands out, but they're, you know, that could just be in one division and the other departments are not, they don't have that type of leader instead of creating a culture or training people in leadership skills. Uh, there's one I call, I call it compassionate leadership. So compassionate, I've been doing compassionate leadership now trainings in behavioral health centers. 
And I'm hearing back from these centers of how helpful it is. And they're sending all of their managers and leaders and some of their, their key staff to these trainings. And it's really about, again, taking care of your teams, but it's making such a big difference in their entire culture of creating this, this really unified, supported system that really cares about each other, that it's improving their scene and now improve their, their interactions with clients now as well. I think that you can make a really strong case for it too, even from the organizational perspective as far as strictly for business purposes. Yeah, there's a huge business case. Because employee retention mm -hmm. saves money. When you look at the onboarding costs for bringing on new people or replacing people that have left, turnover is expensive. Yeah, I mean, so that is probably the biggest cost. And then there's the opportunity that comes in as well of there's the increased productivity from your employees they are operating at a higher level. There's the increased commitment to the organization that it's not just about staying in their job, but them talking about the organization in a way that, that is in a, in a good light to other people. And so it's attracting even higher level employees. And there's also the effect it has on the patients when they're in a healthier culture. You know how it is. They, they pick up on vibes. If there's a negative vibe going on within the organization and everybody's burnt out, the, the patients feel that. And so by having improving this culture and making it this supportive kind of, not that it's going to be rainbows and sunshine every day, but making it a, a more a healthier culture, that bleeds over to the clients who then leave and their alumni stay involved, who bring in more clients. I mean, there's so many reasons why you would want to do this at a cultural level. Yeah. I mean, it certainly makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. So from your experience and your studies, which are the industries that you would sort of model the most like who do you think has this right because everything i'm seeing in our larger culture like our larger society is really pointing in the direction of a huge decline <laughs> in people who are even willing to participate yeah. in the workforce mm -hmm. those numbers are way way down there are people who are opting just not to work because it appears to be unrewarding in in so many ways and you hear about these large employers that really offer a terrible environment to work and yet they might be the only employer in your town right right i don't think there's any specific industry that's doing it well i think there's actors in each industry that are doing a really good job uh, hewlett packard is one they have, I think, like 70,000 employees or probably more than that, I'd imagine, but all over the world. And somehow they have one of the best employee wellness systems that in place where people love working there. Um, there's in hospitality, I know the Four Seasons, people who work for the Four Seasons love working for the Four Seasons. What are they doing that sets them apart from other organizations? I mean, there's so many different things, but so it starts at the cultural level of there is care and compassion that's being given. Um, they focus much more on creating a sense of passion and, and purpose and giving you fulfillment in your job and making sure that what you're doing is in line with that sense of fulfillment and that you're not, you're not doing something you shouldn't be doing just because you're getting paid a ton of money to do it. So they, they really give you a lot of autonomy, a lot of them, give you room to be to express your authentic self. Virgin, for example, is a great company to work for. 
um, the Virgin Hotels, the cruises. Talk to anybody who works for those those companies. I'm sure they'll have outliers, but they love it because they're allowed to be their authentic selves. I was thinking about that. Like, how much of my authentic self can I be on an airplane? You know. But and that's what's interesting is that they they want you. If you got a sleeve full of tattoos. They want you wearing short sleeve only. They want you showing that off. They want you to have your personality to show. And I think what we've seen over the last decade or so, or at least this is what the research is showing us, is that organizations that can foster a sense of authenticity in people and individuals and that use a, some form of authentic leadership, they're able to, to thrive and to, to be much more, to be able to grow, to be more collaborative, to be more creative, innovative, and to be more successful in retaining talented people that's interesting that you say that and the first thing that comes to my mind is in years past when people seem to take more pride in working for an organization like i think maybe 20 years ago or so it was the coolest thing to be an auto manufacturer you know mm -hmm. for like ford motors or something like that and people took pride in it they took pride in it because it was part of how they identified geographically with the place that they're from. So I'm from Detroit. And yeah. My old man was a mechanic with Ford Motors and whatever, that kind of a thing. Sure. And I don't think you have that so much about companies. So the idea that you'd bring your own identity there and that they would foster that, maybe that's more of what we have to offer in the mid 2000s, right? Maybe that, maybe it's that I can bring my own individual identity here and that gets nurtured in a way and that becomes my pride in the organization. Well, and think about that on a cultural level too, like societal level is that we're all trying to, it's become this society thing where we're all trying to express ourselves individually. Social media really has fostered that, maybe to a fault to, to some extent, but that's what our culture is now. It's a very individualistic society where we, we wanna express ourselves and be unique. It's the quote from Fight Club. We're from a generation of people that thought we were all going to be movie stars and rock stars, mm. and we're not. Don't fuck with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how do you make a rock star then out of everybody? And how do you make, you know, that's, that's sort of the idea, but unfortunately, or fortunately, that's what people want. And I think what we see is a lot of companies fighting against that. They just complain about this generation doesn't want this, or this generation doesn't want that, or they won't come to work and we pay them so well, they don't even seem to care. And I think they're looking at it wrong. We need to start looking at it in terms of generational differences and how do we adapt our culture to meet the needs of the 20-somethings the coming into work now? Totally. Because these kids are not stupid. No. And it's not that they're lazy. I think there's a huge sense of disenfranchisement that has been brought about by this corporate greed. And these are just my own opinions, right? I'm not stating them as, stating them as fact. When I thought about myself growing up in the 80s, I watched my father make a really good living working as a mid-level executive in retail. He was like a, a regional VP for like retail stores mm. and made a really good living and was able to put his kids through college and you know save for retirement and you know we had a home, all those things. And I think that that's sort of more of that American dream through corporate 
that we were led to believe was available to like all of us. If you do the right thing and you go to school and you work hard, you can have that opportunity. These young people look at these corporations and they see that as being totally unattainable. They don't believe in it. They don't believe that these corporations care about them. They have access to all kinds of information that will suggest to you that these companies do not care about the employees, that they're there to squeeze as much out of you as they can to keep the profit margins high. And if you ever reach a place where you are making a decent living, they're going to age you out and find someone younger to replace you. Mm -hmm. So wherever you're working, you're not retiring from there. You're not going to do your 20 years in retirement, 30 years in retirement. You're going to work 10 years, they're going to burn you out, and then they're going to cut you loose. Yeah. And I think that's the mentality of young people. They know this, and they don't have any stock in the cultural identity of workplace. And I think it's a huge disparity in culture and cultural perspectives between young people, you know, just like the millennials and people who are maybe 30 years older than them that will see them as lazy or they don't want to work or they hate America or whatever mm -hmm. other things that they're saying about um, the fact that we have this like labor shortage yeah. in our country now. So there's all these sort of jobs available. And with that said, <laughs> I am going to share a little bit from my personal workforce hero, Beth McGrath from Walmart. This is amazing. If you guys have never heard this, um, this woman named Beth McGrath, who was working at Walmart at the height of the pandemic, quit and she did her resignation over the loudspeaker. And I kind of feel like in a way, she's sort of the voice of a generation mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, workplace abuse. So I'm going to go ahead and play this recording. Attention Walmart shoppers and associates. My name is Beth from Electronics. I've been working at Walmart for almost five years, and I can say that everyone here is overworked and underpaid. The attendant policy is bullshit. We are treated for management and customers poorly every day. Whenever we have a problem with it, we're told that we're replaceable. I'm tired of the constant gaslighting. This company treats their elderly associates like shit. To Jared, our store manager, you're a pervert. Greta and Kathy, shame on y'all for treating your associates the way you do. I hope you speak to your families the way you speak to us. Shout out to Carmenie, Patty, Shardell, and so many more. Walmart doesn't deserve y'all. Fuck management and fuck this job. I quit. <laughs> I love it, man. It's, it's so good. The voice of a generation. It's so good. I love it. There's so much to unpack there. <laughs> It is. So I'm looking at this and I'm seeing a woman probably from a smaller area where the opportunities for working class people, there's maybe not a lot of them. And you have a store like Walmart that's run all of the other smaller retail out of town. So it's like the only game in town. And this is how people feel about working there. And they probably employ a lot of people. So you have, you know, a couple of hundred people, whatever, that work there, all sort of feeling like this. And that, that video went viral. It was on Bill Maher. Joe Rogan talked about it. I mean, this video was everywhere. And I think it became popular 
because it's kind of true. It's relatable. Yeah. We, I think we've all at some point in our lives have been there where we're just like, I got to get out of this place. This, I'm being treated terribly. It's just so much to unpack there. And by the way, I don't know if, if she, because this is my first time hearing this. And I know this is like three, four years old, right? You said, I, and I could be totally wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Walmart now is actually, people who work at Walmart actually love working for Walmart. And I, it could be just this individual store was managed poorly. I don't know. I'm not here to defend you know, big Walmart. But from what I understand, actually, corporate Walmart actually does a great job of taking care of their employees because they've always focused on this mission first kind of perspective for their employees that we're here to serve and provide affordable, whatever it may be to, to people to help them to live a better life. I don't know. I think, uh, Beth Shardell and Dominique probably would disagree with that. <laughs> but my understanding was that the wages there are pretty low and you heard for yeah. a long time, and I don't have the stats in front of me, but you heard for a long time that a lot of people working there, I mean, they were like below the poverty level, full-time employees. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what some of the stuff that I think has is being addressed and Walmart is trying to to work to address those types of issues. And again, I'm not here to defend them. I could be totally wrong as well. But the um, this just speaks to though, I mean, she specifically named two people, right? Jared, who's a pervert apparently, and and someone else who speaks to people really terribly there. It just shows you how it really only takes a couple really toxic managers who are probably on a power trip to destroy an entire organization's culture and their want to work there and be there. Yeah. If, like you said, like if you take those things apart that she said that the manager is a pervert and this other lady talks terribly to people, it's like that's someone who's sexually harassing female employees, apparently, I'm assuming. And someone else who's abusive. And it sounds as though her perspective of the recourse there is that there is none. And that if you complain about it, gaslit or told just to go work somewhere else. So you look at that and you say, where's the safety and protection for these people? Where's the human resources? And where's the upper management in looking at that and dealing with these managers that are like mistreating people? You just said two words that I think were really important that are probably being overlooked at this Walmart that I'd imagine. You said people and human were two words that stood out to me. I think that's where management is forgetting that these are people that are humans who have feelings, emotions, that they need to have a sense of fulfillment. That's typically where most organizations fail as they start looking at employees as replaceable, as numbers, as just something that is just there to serve a purpose and to do their job, clock in, clock out. And, and that's the mistake. And when you talk about generational differences, what this generation wants, I think is actually very courageous and brave and really admirable is that they don't necessarily care about the money, although it's important, of course, being paid well and compensated well is important. What they want is to feel like they belong. People are craving connection and purpose and belonging now more than ever. You don't hear a lot about it, but I've heard some stories about it on uh, some news podcasts about the resurgence of unions and attempts to create unions at Starbucks, which I think now has one. I don't know if it's just isolated to a couple of the stores in, in New York or if it's gone national or if they're working their way. I think you do it store by store. 
and Amazon, I know that there have been some people getting together to try to create unions there. They come up against a lot of resistance, uh, bordering on some stuff that's illegal. And actually, I think some of that behavior is being investigated or has been investigated. Right. But is that true? The uni- I think Tesla also is another one, too, where people are trying to unionize. And there's the management literally engaged in illegal union busting tactics. Yeah. Yeah, firing and yeah, I mean, all types of stuff that went down, discrimination. I don't know the specifics of of each one, but I remember reading about this. And yeah, I mean, I think it speaks to people how unhappy they are within these organizations. And they probably feel trapped or they know that working for Amazon looks great on a resume or that it's the only opportunity that they have is to drive for Amazon or working at their local Starbucks. You know, they feel like those those are big machines right there. They are. And you know, when you hear this stuff and you hear about people trying to unionize to create better opportunities for really working class people and on a large scale, and that these corporations are able to thwart their efforts to interfere with that in ways that are, you know, bordering on illegal and really kind of pushing people down. Honestly, man, it really just feels un-American. Yeah. You know, in a way like that's not who we're supposed to be. I would actually argue it feels very American. It's very corporate, very capitalistic. It's how can we crank every dollar out of these people? I think you're right. And I'll say it like this. I think it's not the America that we were promised. Vote vote for Eric. (laughs) No, I agree. Seriously, though, generations of people before us had these opportunities. And it's kind of like who stewarded all of this to make sure the people that came after would have them. And I could understand through the eyes of a younger person being completely disenfranchised by that and really having a lot of indifference or hostility Mm -hmm. towards the whole system. Sure. Because you're not going to get the opportunity of people that came before you in working class, like can't make a living. No, yeah, and it's it's different. You have to work multiple jobs now. You know, I, I think again, it comes down to people have a voice now, and it's it's different than it was twenty, thirty years ago, and where people didn't question systems. But we have access to more information than ever. We have places we can go express ourselves now, and we have Beth, Beth, and we have ways. As Beth went viral, we have ways of holding leadership accountable now. Yeah, to their ways, and we're no longer saying that hey, this is okay. Just because you're in a higher position than me, you can treat me like I'm garbage. Oh, I bet you Jared cleaned himself up after this. Oh, yeah. I, I have a feeling Jared's probably not working there any longer. Yeah. I wonder if it's the same. Is, uh, did Jared from Subway also work from, from for Walmart? <laughs> he, had some, he had some different problems. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He was also a pervert. I think Jared from Subway might be doing some time. He is. There's a whole documentary on Jared from Subway right now. That's... Is, is he actually in prison currently? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I feel like with the things he was doing, he's probably going to be there for a minute. Yeah, I, you know. Not and by the way, we're not disparaging all Jareds. It just happens to be two Jareds that are perverts. That is. <laughs> it, it is. I'm Fair sure there's enough. more than. Two. No, I know a couple of good ones. I know. A I do of, know a couple of good Jareds as I well. I know a couple of good ones. Yeah, so they, they they balance it out. <laughs> that's it. We're here to say that not all Jareds are perverts. Yeah, that's the point of this podcast. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah, man. Oh, so much to talk about, Blake. I, I had ideas of things that we might discuss. And, um, you know, we're already like into over an hour now. So I'm sure you probably had something else going on today. 
I know the dogs are waiting to get to the park and stuff like that, but I just really want to say that this has been as enjoyable as I thought it would be. That's awesome. Yeah, me too. And uh, I really enjoyed having you here. It's great. And I'm glad that we did it. And thank you so much for making the time and coming in and hanging out with me and sharing all your thoughts on this stuff. I think it's really interesting. And I also, I'm really, I'm rooting for you, man, that you get through school and really participate in some reform in what's going on in behavioral health as far as how a lot of these people are feeling about their jobs. This is a very special industry. And when you think about the fact that, I don't know if people say it anymore, but at one point people called this little corner of the world, the Mecca of recovery. And people came from all over the country, really all over the world to take advantage of the opportunities to save their lives, live better lives, all that through these treatment programs that are here. And a lot of people who work in those programs are products of those systems, really serving as living examples of what is possible if you go to treatment, stay sober, do all these things. And they're very special people. And I know a lot of them. I mean, look, not everyone's special, but a lot of these folks are very special people and they really deserve to be treated well. Because a person working in treatment as a behavioral health tech, making $15, $16 an hour, whatever it is, they could be making that same amount of money working in the mall, but they're choosing to be doing this much, much harder job working with people and whatever can be done to improve the perception of importance of these people and the work that they're doing, it should be done and they should feel good about the work that they're doing. They should feel good about the place that they work. I agree. I think that these, like you said, there it's a lot of very special people. And I would argue that everyone in this industry is special to a degree because they are committed to helping others and wanting to give others a better life. And I'm not here to say that it's the system is totally broken or that it's not great. I'm here to say that we can. it is great and we can do it better. We can continue to do it better, make it more sustainable, add some longevity to these people's career and really make something incredible happen for the clients that we treat. And I keep saying we, because I do feel like I'm a member of the behavioral health industry. I've been in it for 10 years. I'm doing this. I'm taking this path so that I can figure out how to make our industry better. And I know there's ways that we can do it. There's ways that I know now I can come into organizations right now and help you start to improve your team dynamics. And that will go a long way. Are you, are you still doing like independent consulting? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm really going to start focusing on now. Um, okay. So it's school and independent consulting. Gotcha. So starting this week, I'm really going to start building out those programs. I have some stuff I've already built, a compassionate leadership trainings, team dynamic trainings, authentic leadership trainings, those types of things. But that's what I'm really going to start building out as my own private consulting. So if people hearing this wanted to get in touch with you to uh, talk to you a little bit more about that, maybe someone's looking to do some work with you on this, how do they, how do they get in touch with you? I would say the best place to find me right now until my, I figure out what I want to call my new company and make a website, yeah, the best place right now would probably be LinkedIn. Okay. If you look up just Blake Cohen, MS cap, I think is what it's on there uh, on LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Right. And I know that you do the uh, workplace wanderer on yes. there. Yeah. I'm assuming that you'll probably be doing more of that. You know, it's, this is what I want to do. 
now that I'm moving forward and I'm giving myself the freedom to say, hey, Blake, what do you want to do? I think that I've been caught up in this, working in this field for, for 10 years now, never really took a break and said, what is it that you want to do? How do you want to build a company? What is it that makes you happy and gives you fulfillment? And the truth is, is talking to people, podcasting, interviewing people that are smarter than me. I love learning from them. Writing, you know, I, I've got a few books that are already in the works and we're going to start, I'm going to start trying to pump them out as fast as I can or making them as quality as possible. And then consulting and working with behavioral healthcare and doing, doing consulting for organizations. That's the, those are the three main prongs right now while in school. So we'll see how, what gets done. If I can just kind of finish with one thing is that I, I think there's this memory I have of maybe a year ago or so where I was in New York doing a training at a, about a mental wellness in the workplace at this huge tech company. And while there, I made a visit to a person, uh, to a treatment program in New York City. And I sat down and the, the owner of this program is a younger guy, very charismatic. And he came in with this big smile and he looked at me and asked me what I was doing. And I explained what Next Level did uh, in terms of providing mental health care and support services. And he, he just had this huge smile on his face and he said, do you love what you do? And that question he asked me was a turning point of, I answered yes, but I was lying. Because at that point, I no longer loved what I was doing. I loved why I was in New York doing that training at this company. And I loved focusing on this bigger picture system type stuff. And I didn't love what, what we were doing at Next Level anymore. Not that the quality wasn't great because Next Level is a great company and provides amazing support services. I didn't love being a part of it anymore. My, my heart was somewhere else. And that's what really started that journey for me of saying, okay, it's time for me to take this step and to walk away and to listen to that, that anxiety that I had been feeling for already maybe a year before that and continued to feel throughout the year. I realized that that anxiety was telling me that I was on the wrong path. And that I wasn't doing what my heart was aligned with and what my, my passion and purpose aligned with. And as we went through the first semester of school, it just solidified even further that this is the place, this is where I want to focus my energy, this, this topic. And although it may seem crazy, and I'm not one to normally say this about myself, especially, I'm usually pretty self-deprecating, but I it took a ton of courage for me to say, I'm going to walk away and I'm going to follow my heart here. And there is a big piece of me that doesn't know specifically what I'll be doing over the next few months. Um, but I am, I am for the first time in my life excited to know that I don't know what I'm doing and that I'm going to be able to explore and figure out and kind of create a world for myself because it feels right. I'm in the right direction. I'm aiming in the right way. But Part of what I learned last semester that led to all of this was how important it is that self-leadership and being able to take care of ourselves and taking the time to work on ourselves and to discover what our passions are and to become clear on those things. And that is what led me to realize that I was so far from doing that, is that I was talking to talk, but I wasn't walking a walk of what I think a good leader does. And I wasn't being true to my authentic self. So that's why the decision was made to walk away from next level and to focus on what I'm going to be focusing on. Um, and in this process, I can tell you starting from day one, 
It's been, what, 13 days since I left the company. I haven't woken up with that anxiety that I've had for years. I haven't woken up one day with that because it's there's an alignment with that passion. So the the message there for me that I think is really important is that we we do have to listen to our bodies and we do have to listen to what what we want to do and sometimes we have to take that leap of faith if we want to get somewhere um, that's going to be fulfilling for us long term i think it's that uh existential tenet of desiring freedom and self-determination but most people when they have freedom they don't know what to do with it and i think what you're describing is the kind of hard look that you take at yourself to recognize and appreciate that you have personal freedom and that you want to do something extraordinary with it and that you have to really kind of take some time to think about what that is if you want to make a good choice and to be intentional with that it's not like i'm sitting around doing nothing these days i'm 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 journaling every day meditating every day i'm i'm back in therapy working on some of that inner child stuff that i i ignored for so many years I am uh, going to the gym regularly again. I am talking to people. I'm really sitting to giving myself time to explore. Sound like someone in rehab. Happy. I do sound like a someone in rehab. <laughs> and you know what? I needed to create my own rehab at this point. Sound like a kid in treatment. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Uh, back to basics, right? Like those are right. the things that that really work. But I'm I'm trying to discover myself again, and I think it's I had to do that. And that's walking away from next level was about me, but it was also about the next level because it wasn't fair to next level anymore. I wasn't serving the organization in the way that I, I should. And I think uh, a tenant of a good leader is uh, knowing what's right for an organization and what's not, and being able to walk away when you're not right for an organization anymore. Well, at the end of the day, I'm sure you're going to go on to do some great things. And I'm sure they are too. It sounds like you, you guys really went about this in the right way for everybody. I hope so. So again, you know, to kind of close out, I would say he's as nice in person as he is online. <laughs> but uh, thank you, Blake, so much for uh, joining me. Thank you for having me, sir. It was a great conversation. Thank you.